Hello and welcome to the Friday, October 16th, 2020 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, Iowa legislative races, candidates on tour, a POTUS visit, and more debates. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Morning. Aaron Murphy, the lead newspaper Statehouse Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. First up, the legislature. Earlier this year, Chaz Nuttycomb of cnalysis.com told me that the Iowa House is the only true toss-up in terms of legislative races around the country. He uh, discounted some early Republican analysis that the party could pick up seats in dis- districts that have been carried by Senator Joni Ernst, President Donald Trump, and Governor Kim Reynolds, but are held by Democratic state reps. In part, he said, because 2024 numbers are not relevant anymore, they're just too old. One of those districts uh, is House Minority Leader Todd Pritchard's in the Charles City area up in Northeast Iowa. Nutty Combs said, based on his electoral track record, Pritchard's not necessarily toast. However, party affiliation seems to be more important now than candidate quality, Nutty Combs said. But we're not totally to the point where if, say, Pritchard was running against a Nazi accused of sexual misconduct, that it'd be a competitive race. Uh, So so far, we haven't heard any rumors of that. So uh, apparently, it's a competitive race. Aaron, uh, you took a deep dive on these legislative races. and Democrats say they think they're in a position to flip the House. Um, we would expect nothing less coming from the minority party, but how realistic are their chances of taking control? Yeah, it, I mean, they are definitely realistic, if not pretty good. Um, it's certainly nothing that's in the bag, but um, there are a lot of pickup opportunities for Democrats and in and they don't even necessarily have to inch across the finish line. Um, there's enough seats in play out there um, that that they have a real opportunity to to gain a net four seats. Um, and I say that because there are some possibilities where some Democratic incumbents could lose two or could they, they could lose a seat. But uh, but as long as they if they net four seat uh, pickup, then they gain the majority. Um, kind of two categories of seats. In play out there, uh, the suburbs uh, are continue to be an area where Democrats think their strength is only building based on what we saw two years ago. Um, and there are a few more out there um, for them to pick up in the, one in the Des Moines area, one in uh, the Cedar Rapids area, some possibilities in the Quad Cities areas. Um, and then there's also some open seat races created by Republican retirements that uh, Democrats feel give them a chance uh, to flip some seats there too in, in some kind of competitive districts. So, so it's it's a it's a very real chance that um, we'll have a different uh, party in, in the majority. Um, but but Republicans um, uh, uh, feel they feel good about their prospects too. Like you said, of course we expect them to say that. Um, uh, but they they um, uh, think they they can defend some of their incumbents and 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 maybe go on the offense too and and uh, if they can flip a few seats that just makes it that much harder 
uh, for the Democrats to get to their um, 50 or 51. Uh, as you mentioned, Democrats feel pretty confident that they can pick up some seats in the suburbs over in this area. Um, they use House 67 as an example of a likely Democratic gain. Uh, that's a district represented by Republican Representative Ashley Hinson, who's running for Congress. Um, Todd, I think that's your district. Are you ready to flip? Actually, it's I'm I'm a couple blocks out of it. Uh, okay. They're they're my they're my neighbors, so I've been keeping tabs. Uh, yeah, it, it, Eric Jarity is the Democratic candidate. He ran against Henson last time and and did okay. I, I think he lost like fifty two forty eight something like that. Uh, and uh, his opponent this time is Sally Ann Abbott, who uh, is a little bit of a mystery to me. Uh, she didn't take our invitation to meet with the editorial board like most Republicans and. Uh, she also didn't fill out our Gazette issue questionnaire. So I know she's a, a registered nurse and a Kirkwood adjunct instructor. And uh, so I, I'm sure Democrats would, would thoroughly enjoy the prospect of potentially beating Henson in the congressional race and taking her house seat. So mm -hmm. that could be a nice, a nice double grab for them. I think Democrats also feel like they can pick up the, the seat next to that, uh, that Louis Zumbaugh holds right now. He's running for the, the Lynn County Board. And uh, Christian Andrews, the Democratic nominee, ran two years ago and lost. Um, and he's running against a, a guy who is the Alburnett uh, um, mayor. And uh, I think he's the Cedar Rapids police officer. Um, but that's another one that they think they can pick up. Um, Tom, uh, around the Quad Cities area, uh, are there opportunities for Democrats to uh, flip some districts. So uh, as Aaron reported, you know, Democrats have targeted a suburban style district in Bettendorf represented by Gary Moore and a um, suburban rural district represented by Ross Poston. Um, Moore is seeking a third term and uh, faces Democrat Mary Gleason, who unsuccessfully ran against State Senator uh, Roby Smith in 2018 and lost uh, 53 to 47 percent. Um, she's a retired uh, project manager at Deer & Co. who um, advocates for greater investment in education, more local control. Um, Democrats have hammered more and near ubiquitous TV and digital ads. It seems like I can't pull up Facebook at all without seeing um, the Democrats attack ad on, on, on Gary Moore, claiming that he's a politician who, uh, quotes, follows his extreme party leadership 99% of the time, uh, close quote. And, um, you know, voting to block state funding to Planned Parenthood, um, in other clinics that provide abortions, leading to the closure of four women's health clinics in Iowa. They also attacking him for cutting about uh, $28 million from the state's health and human services budget, uh, you know, which funds things like Medicaid, the Department of Public Health, and the Department of Veteran Affairs. Um, that was an effort to cover a $250 million budget shortfall. Um, in, in Austin's case, he's a farmer and a four-term incumbent who faces a first-term candidate, Jennifer Caker to Bluegrass. Um, in Moore's case, I think Democrats' attacks could be effective, especially if displeasure with Republicans over their refusal to stand up to President Trump and his kind of erratic and divisive presidency becomes such a motivating factor that it uh, impacts Republicans down ballot. I just don't know how much of that, of, of what's going on at the federal level, will kind of reverberate and impact down ballot candidates at the state level. I see that being more of a factor in the U.S. Senate and House races. 
Um, plus, state house Republicans have an effective rebuttal that their fiscal management of the state budget has put Iowa in a better position than most uh, uh, states in the country to help weather the economic fallout of this pandemic with a $305 million surplus and decent cash reserves, um, while also increasing investments, albeit modestly, in, in K-12 education and, and broadband. Um, it's also a largely conservative district and Moore has been willing to, to listen. He's accessible. Um, so if it does flip, I think it'll be extremely close um, and it would be a big coup for Democrats. Um, in Poshin's case, I, I just don't know that many voters are familiar with Jennifer Kakert or, or, or really know that she's running. I just don't know that she's um, really done as, as, as good of a job as um, uh, Mary Gleason and, and Democrats in the Moore district or the Moore race, you know, getting, getting her name out there and, 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 and making her visible. Um, over in this part of the state, I think there's a couple, I mean, Republicans for some reason think they can beat Todd Pritchard, which always seems to be a long shot when you're taking on a, a caucus leader like that. Um, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, both parties want to knock off uh, the, the, you know, majority leader or the minority leader or the speaker, but those, that doesn't happen very often. Um, it's rare, but we do have recent precedent. Sorry, with um, uh, Mike Gronstall. Uh, right. In right. Yeah. It's it's pretty rare, but it does. Yeah, it happens. Um, Republicans think they can pick up a seat up in um, Fayette County area where Bruce Berenger has resigned, and the, the Republican running there is uh, a farmer who is pretty well known and been involved in um, Farm Bureau and I think the corn growers and some groups like that. Um, and I'm, I'm in one of the, in the swing districts, right. uh, in the yeah. north side of Ankeny. Yep. Um, so 2018 was a huge sweep year in the Des Moines suburbs for, uh, Democrats. It, only two Republicans, uh, representing Polk County were left. Uh, one's a more rural area of Polk County and the last suburban Polk County Republican is John Landon. Uh, that's where I am here on the north side of Ankeny and Democrats feel really good that that growing trend is going to push them across and 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 uh, pick up this seat as well. Heather, um, or I'm sorry, Heather Madsen is the one who won on the South Side two years ago. Andrea Phillips is the Democrat running against uh, John Landon in this one. That's mm -hmm. another big one, big target for Democrats. Brett, uh, your area over there, Sioux City in Western Iowa, is pretty red. Uh, do Democrats have any opportunities there to make gains? Well, the place that, you know, that they always do best would be Woodbury County and the house seats are currently held by Democrats. So there's, there's none to flip, so to speak here. The, the one, um, James, that I'm kind of curious about, I, I don't know that it's right flip, but, but I, I'm intrigued to watch, I guess. Um, I was thinking back to 2004, I guess my second election cycle here at the journal, I was writing about the growing um, potential um, influence of Latino voters and how that could, you know, how that could swing, you know, will they get engaged, you know, how, who, what party will they go to, you know, those, those sorts of things. And I've written about, you know, we've all written about that over recent years, um, over cycles since then. But anyway, in the Storm Lake district, which has a high amount of, um, uh, it's a house district with Storm Lake, Buena Vista and some other counties, I believe, but with the high Latino population there in Storm Lake, um, Gary Worthen is running. He's a Republican mm -hmm. who's won, I think, six or seven um, times for that House seat. He's running against uh, Sarah Huddleston, and um, she's a Latino. 
um, who was trying for the second time against against him, and she lost um, 65-35. For I think it was 2000. I think it was four years ago in 2016. So it wasn't that close. Um, that district is about. I think I just typed this the other day. I think it's about 3,000 advantage for Republican registered over Democrats. But um, Sarah had won three three terms on the um, Storm Lake City Council. So she has some name recognition. She won previously. If nothing else, I'm curious to see if how much she can close the gap, so to speak. Um, I, again, I don't see the, her winning that, but you know that could be indicative of a trend um, for you know um, you know maybe things are, are getting better out in the, the hinterlands or at least the, uh, you know a place with high Latino uh, population. Mm -hmm. Funny story I heard about her um, from a, a credible source that in would have been 2010. 2000, no, 2014, um, Senator Tom Harkin tried to recruit her to run in that race. Um, and he, he said, oh, I don't care if she wins. I just want somebody out there campaigning in Spanish. <laughs> so, um, and so if she wins, be the first, isn't it, isn't it right? She would be the first Latino in the Iowa House. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah, and, I think so. and that may happen anyways. There's um, uh, a Republican candidate in, uh, uh, I I can't remember the district. It's Eastern Iowa. It might be south of the Quad Cities there, Tom, over by Oh, uh, yeah, Muscatine. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I'm sorry, I'm, 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 I'm blanking on the I'm name. I'm blanking on the name, too. I believe he's in law enforcement. Um, uh, I, I'll go back. As we move on, I'll go back and find it and jump back <laughs> on here with the name, but um, and Republican, I think it's in a pretty Republican district, so um, we, we, we could have that history making with our first uh, Latino state representative. Another race that Democrats uh, seem to have their sights set on is um, the Cedar County, Muscatine County, Johnson County, Bobby Kaufman's district, um, where the Johnson County Sheriff, who is retiring, is now running for that House seat. Um, and he's been you know, very popular in Johnson County. Uh, and that's a case of where the bulk of the district is in Cedar County, which is rural. And uh, uh, there's a, I think it takes in a corner of Muscatine County. Uh, and the question is whether Democrats can get enough votes in Johnson County to offset the Republican numbers in those other two counties. And, and they're really running a lot of ads, really uh, going after Kaufman. And I mean, they have a, a, a strong candidate in Lonnie Paul Kravick. So um, that's going to be an interesting uh, race to watch. And of course, it's one that if they take down Bobby Kaufman, he's the son of the Republican Party chairman. So, it, you know, it, again, it's uh, it's sort of like uh, Democrats winning Ashley Hinson's seat and defeating her congressional bid. It's kind of they get two for the price of one, I guess. So I so I found it here and it's the it's the Republican district. Um, uh, where Gary Carlson has retired uh, and the Republican candidate's name is Mark Cisneros. And I apologize if I'm uh, mispronouncing that last name. Um, so Republicans feel good about keeping that seat and, and he would become uh, the first Latino um, state representative. Um, and then uh, while we're on that note, uh, we may also have our first uh, Korean American in the legislature, another Republican retirement uh, um, and their candidate Henry Stone um, in District 7, um, uh, Gassman's former seat, James, help me, uh, where, where's that? Oh, it's, up, uh, oh, it's, it's up in Winnebago. 
Yeah, yeah, Winnebago County. County. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so we could have both our first uh, uh, Latino and Cumbrian American um, state representatives. My um, goodness, diversity is next year. Diversity is Just blossoming. Bursting at the seams with diversity. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move along here. Uh, Senate campaigns, uh, both Senator Joni Ernst and um, Teresa Greenfield were all over Iowa this weekend. Uh, of course, Ernst was on her right across Iowa, which was the pandemic version of her annual roasted ride fundraiser. Uh, one of the points she made at every stop was that unlike her opponent, she was out meeting Iowans, not virtually, but meeting them where they live. Um, however, Greenfield also showed up at, in some of the same places in recent days, including Sioux City. Greenfield has been criticized by Republicans for her, quote, unquote, basement campaign and failing to visit Northwest Iowa. Brett, um, did Greenfield feel at home in Sioux City? And what kind of yeah, reception? I, yeah, go ahead. I, I would say so. So I with again, with coronavirus, um, I, I spoke with her and, and said, you know, I hadn't seen you um, in this entire year. Um, so, um, but she said, you know, that's just the reality of, of campaigning in coronavirus. But now she's ramping up her public visits here as we you know, head toward election day. Um, she held three events in Sioux City and I caught her at the first one, which was at a coffee shop. So I, I can't speak to the other two, but they were more um, touring um, a business or a healthcare facility. Um, but at the at the coffee shop, it was not it was not a large gathering. There was less than ten people over the course of the time that she was there. But um, you know, she, you know, she made you know, she spoke. You know, she made connect. There there were Democrats that were there to hear her, and she made you know, good connections and, and spoke to the issues that they like to hear about. Um, you know, Woodbury County is is uh, you know, if if you buy the logic that she needs to to do extremely well in, in all the urban areas, the high population urban areas, and then, you know, get whatever she can out of the rural areas, you know, more Republican areas, then Woodbury County is, you know, she needs to do as well as Woodbury County. Woodbury County is less purple. It's a little more red lately. It's the slight advantage to Republicans. So if she can show that, you know, she can draw an independence and et cetera up here, then, you know, that would obviously help her campaign uh, statewide. Todd, um, we could probably do a whole podcast talking about the full Grassley and how it's become sort of the, the standard for statewide candidates. And, and even in some of the congressional districts, you know, visiting every county every year has become a big deal. But in a practical sense, is there any reason for Teresa Greenfield to go to Sioux County or Dickinson County or some of those counties along the southern uh, tier of the state uh, along the Missouri border where there are very few people and even fewer likely Democratic voters. I mean, is it a good use of her time? Well, you know, normally, yes, I think it is good to go all over the state and sort of, you know, it was like when Howard Dean was Democratic National Committee Chair, they, you know, they ran a 50 state strategy, which, you know, of course, you know, Barack Obama didn't win all 50 states, but, you know, you make inroads in those places and you, you know, and it shows that you're willing to talk to voters wherever they are and it you know gives you sort of a i mean from a public perception that you know you're not you're not just ignoring you know other folks that don't necessarily agree with you and you're not running for you know senator or president of just your people that agree with you i guess so but with the pandemic and sort of having to to sort of limit the personal campaign appearances 
until you know i think they're they've started doing more recently but yeah i don't know now in the stretch run is it worth going to all those places with time running out no probably not i mean you need to concentrate on the places where you can where your voters are and you you're going to need those voters to turn out and that's kind of the end game and i I seriously doubt that, you know, Joni Ernst is going to spend a lot of time in Johnson County in the last couple of weeks of the campaign. It's, I mean, she's going to go where her, where she needs votes. So that's where we're at now. Like I say, at a normal campaign, I think it is good to, to get out everywhere and, and, and do as much of the full grassley as you can. In, in addition to those areas, not having a lot of voters, most of them are areas where there isn't any TV um, and maybe, you know, very limited uh, radio or a newspaper coverage. So, you know, it, it's sort of the, if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, you know, I mean, when, when uh, Teresa Greenfield goes to Woodbury County, it may not be the most uh, vote rich place for her, but at least she's going to get coverage by the Sioux City Journal mm-hmm. and local TV. When she goes to, uh, you know, uh, Lyon County, I, you know, it's, She's she's talking to the ten people in front of her, basically. So I, you know, and, and I remember uh, would have been in 2014 when Braley was running. Uh, it might have been the day that uh, Ernst dropped the "Make 'Em Squeal" ad, and Braley was like up in Orange City or somewhere, and basically he lost a whole day uh, to respond to that. I mean, he just he wasn't anywhere where he could really respond to the ad, and and uh, a. a Democratic campaign consultant told me, he said it was like, there was no point in being there in the first place, you know, because he wasn't going to get any votes from Orange City. But, uh, you know, so I guess it's the calculations that those high price consultants get paid to make. Um, in hindsight, I think he called me that day and now I re- realize why, I guess. I, sh- I should. <laughs> it's all on you, Brett. It's all on you. <laughs> all right. Uh, and uh, Aaron, who's always willing to live on the edge, ventured into Donald Trump's Des Moines airport rally. I'm old enough to remember when he flew into Des Moines and invited the media onto his private jet to talk about running an Iowa caucus campaign. Uh, Aaron, I'm guessing you didn't get invited aboard Air Force One. Uh, <laughs> no, although it's funny <clears throat> you mentioned that because I had one of those um, moments where you start to feel like the kind of... Um, old grizzled grizzly ornery reporter of the group because it's clearly built for theatrics as as things often are with this president air force one literally pulled up on the runway right behind the you know where he was going to speak uh to to make it this big visual and and the the whole crowd obviously was up with their pictures and even oh you know the tv cameras oh look at this and a lot of the reporters getting up and get excited time is just sitting there yeah yeah it's a plane can we get this thing moving it's getting cold i feel like it's rain i want to get out of here i was the only one still back here sitting on, on press row while everybody pictures of air force uh you're a little too young to be the curmudgeon aaron but uh yeah <laughs> that's what i thought but i don't know i might be getting there yeah, and, schedule. yeah and now we'll have to wait 14 days to see if uh aaron survives the super spreader event um <laughs> My guess is that it was like Joni Ernst uh, right across Iowa and Cedar Rapids, uh, where the local Republicans were joking that they could tell who the media or who was media because they were the only people wearing masks, which unfortunately was pretty much accurate. 
So, Aaron, the president's visit, uh, what were the highlights? Did he offer to kiss you? Did he did you pucker up? <laughs> I, I stayed socially distant. Uh, so so that uh, offer was uh, never had a chance to be extended. We'll never know, I guess. Um, you know, it was pretty typical as far as uh, uh, a Trump rally goes. Um, you are not far off the mark. There were some masks. I, I won't say nobody was wearing them, but they were um, the minority uh, uh, to say the, the least. The people behind the president who were in the TV shot right. apparently were wearing, yeah. Right, and I highly doubt that's a coincidence. That's, uh, uh, I'm sure that was an organized <laughs> effort. Um, the more you spread out in the crowd, the more rare they became. Um, but I, I will say, uh, just if anybody actually cares about this, uh, other than uh, my colleagues on the podcast, as a reporter, I, it wasn't too bad. Um, there was a, a very big area for press, and we were, we were fairly separated from uh, the crowd, so it was easily easy to stay. And it was outside. That obviously helps. Um, so we were easy to keep distance from other people. And I'll tell you, if you've read any of the stories about the national press not following the president around right now because of concerns, that's true. There was hardly any national press there. I, I was really struck by that. Um, so, so there were far fewer reporters than you would expect to see uh, normally at an event like that. Um, as far as the president himself, it was kind of the normal stem winding um, uh, Trump speech. He did talk a little bit about his... Um, his personal bout with the COVID-19 and, and I, I, I may have missed it, but I hadn't heard him talk about that in that detail before. So that was kind of interesting. And he kind of admitted that he was uh, feeling pretty um, uh, cruddy there for a day or two and had some temperatures that uh, um, he admitted to being concerned about. Um, so that was interesting. Um, as I noted in my story, he claimed a victory on the fight against ethanol, which, which as I noted was a fight against himself. Um, since it was his EPA that caused the problem in the first place. So that was a, um, an interesting one. Um, um, and and uh, for, for Iowa sports fans, uh, maybe one of the highlights was uh, Dan Gable coming up um, at the end and uh, being honored for he's going to get the Presidential uh, Medal of free, Freedom. Um, and I know for... That one kind of crosses party lines a little bit. Uh, I'm Dan Gable, obviously a, a revered subject in in Iowa sports and uh, over time, and uh, uh, I guess even Dave Lobzak had called for him to get the Medal of Freedom. So that was a fun little moment uh, towards the end. <laughs> Dave was just happy that Gable didn't run against him. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, Debate season continued this week as well. Uh, Senator Ernst and, and uh, Teresa Greenfield debated, uh, as well as second district candidates, um, Rita Hart and Marionette Miller-Meeks. Um, Tom and Aaron, you were at that second district debate. Uh, Tom, highlights, or was this pretty much uh, a rehash of their earlier debates? Yeah, this was a, largely a rehash of the earlier debates. I mean, this was kind of a, a repeat performance of what, uh, what we've previously seen. It was the, the same talking points and kind of the same lines of attacks. And, you know, we didn't really learn anything new um, from, from these candidates. Um, 
uh, yeah, uh, I, I just I don't think there was really any any news to come out of out of the debates. I didn't learn anything new. Um, you know, um, it was again just the same talking points, the same lines of attack, same things that we've seen previously. Aaron, uh, I guess you were throwing questions at these candidates. Uh, thoughts about the debate? Yeah, it, uh, other I, than I, other than the excellent questions, uh, how are the answers? <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, no, I, I I agree with Tom, and this is the third time they've debated. <laughs> the second time I've been a panelist on one of those debates, and at that point, it's it's hard to you know draw any new blood out of these candidates. Um, and I mean, they're so good at staying on message, even when you try and prod them. Um, we tried to get a little bit at them with um, you know fresh views on maybe something that's a little bit newer in the news and, and the two examples of that I'll just mention real quick were um, the um, COVID relief package negotiations. And, and uh, I tried to get a sense from Rita Hart uh, because there are, there's some fracturing the democratic party. They think Nancy Pelosi uh, should take the deal that Republicans are offering rather than hold out for more. Uh, she, she kind of sidestepped that one by saying, well, I'm not a part of those negotiations. Uh, um, so, you know, I, I did my best there, so I didn't come up with anything more. Um, and then the other one was uh, the Miller Meeks campaign had just released their newest ad, which um, claimed that um, Rita Hart has supported this plan from Cory Booker um, that in part includes a moratorium on, on factory farms, large-scale feeding operations. And I tried to get them both to talk about that a little bit. And, and, and it was, I don't know if it was super. The, the only thing I did find interesting was Rita Hart didn't take that uh, position of uh, calling for a freeze. Um, the, the more liberal wing of the, of the Democratic Party, you know, the CCI has pushed for this, for example, um, has called for, for that, a freeze on, on new factory farms. And, and Rita Hart wasn't willing to go that far on it. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's it, it was uh, it was it was a lot of more of the same with those two. Okay. Brett, uh, no debates over in the fourth district. Uh, Senator Randy Peenstra has uh, refused to debate Democrat J.D. Shulton, but uh, he's got a poll that uh, is good news for him, I guess. Right. Um, there's a poll that came out um, just the other day, um, and um, it was from a, an internal poll that was um, American Viewpoint was the organization that had um, done it on behalf of, of Feenstra's team. And it showed him with a 23% um, uh, lead over Shulton. And um, um, that comports with an independent poll from back in August um, by Monmouth that had about a 20 point lead as well. Um, in between there, there was a 5% um, much, much different outcome in the Iowa poll a few weeks ago by the Des Moines Register that sh uh, showed uh, Peenstrup with a 5% lead. And uh, I covered um, uh, Shulton, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, last night, he had a parking lot rally here mm -hmm. in Sioux City, and he um, cited out, um, he has an internal poll um, that we may be able to publish here in the journal fairly shortly that shows a much closer race. And uh, last night also, he contended that that most recent internal poll was a push poll and that it's not accurate and that really the state of the race is much, much closer than and maybe more in line with like what the register poll was. So uh, last night was very interesting. I had a, a first, I covered a parking lot rally is what he calls it, is what Shulton mm -hmm. has been holding the last few weeks. And I'm not sure 
um, if they'll get over toward uh, Amy, where maybe the courier could conceive one of these in the next few weeks, but he's been starting to hold these. And the concept is in a time of coronavirus, you don't, you know, you don't go to an arena or whatever and see people indoors. So we had people go to the parking lot at a large um, Sioux City Park and about 70 cars pulled up and I and some media members were among them. And he, um, he had a radio frequency that you could hear um, him speak over, over the thing. People were supposed to stay in their cars, which they all did. Um, and it went about 35 minutes and it, it was, it was a nice uh, back and forth. People, you, um, the questions would come in and I think he took uh, not quite a dozen questions. Um, and it, it was a nice format. He, it was interesting. He, he cut it off at 630. So this was like right after work for people. He cut it off at 630 so that people could then watch. And they projected it at the same parking lot up on a, uh, a screen that they had set up to watch the um, Ernst and Greenfield debate last night. So um, interesting for me as a reporter to see this, this new fangled stuff. I don't know that, it, you know, probably, hopefully next election cycle, we don't have to do parking lot rallies. But, uh, but again, in that, um, you know, um, Shulton was making the point that it's a much closer race. And there, yes, um, I did want to bring up that some fundraising reports yeah. have dropped here in, the, in this, uh, just to wrap up here. Um, those were all due last night for the third quarter through September 30th. And there's, you know, we've, we've heard previously um, that Teresa Greenfield in the Senate race brought in like 29 million and which was about four times as much, I think is what earned, was it like in mm -hmm. the vicinity of five or 6 million, I believe was what yeah. Ernst was. Um, uh, so what the new reports showed for Shulton is that he continues to lead over Feenstra every single quarter. I think it's like the fourth or fifth quarter in a row. And um, last, it was a little more than 800,000 that he brought in was 815,000 uh, for the third quarter. And Feenstra by comparison brought in 456,000 for the cycle that takes Shulton to almost 2.5 million versus um, 1.7 for, for Feenstra. So um, all those are being turned into campaign ads and you know, campaign stops and et cetera. And, and with early voting, we're getting close. We've got about two weeks to go. Has it early voting been pretty heavy over there? Yeah, definitely. I heard, yeah. um, I heard a radio report even from just, I bungled into this yesterday up, up in Plymouth County, just north of Woodbury County, that it was very high compared to um, come other years and certainly absolutely in Woodbury County as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, quickly, um, Woodbury County is one of those places where uh, Republicans went to court to um, uh, over the ballot request forms that the, your auditor sent out. Uh, how is the auditor taking all that? Um, Personally so yeah, or just, just? Yeah, he I've done maybe I've talked to him maybe twice since since the, the ultimate court hearing and he, you know, didn't you know, wasn't, didn't love it, but he immediately complied as the other, other counties did and, and sent them out right away. And, and those new, those new um, mailings came out the other day. And I've, I've talked to several people this week that finally their ballots were showing up like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of this week. So people that were wondering when my ballot will show up, those are, are finally out. Okay. Well, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope it was worth your time. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. Send fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. You can find us on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Imperfect will take us out. 
if you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Brett, Aaron, Tom, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Stay well. When they're super fresh, small place, big dreams on the road to success. Mike and the crew, the cause, collective, Midwest indigenous MCs respected. From near to far, here we revere the art, taking charge of the hip-hop scene so we can raise the bar. They're faking hard, we keep it really, really real, acting like you don't know. Catch my nippy little spiel, moving swiftly on your heels, but the fact is I'm laughing you. Cause of your half-stepping attitude, melodramatic crews who never had a clue, chuckle with a bad excuse, but really, I ain't that amused. You down with M-I-C, H-A-N-D, you down with M-I-C, H-A-N-D, you down with M-I-C, H-A-N-D, now throw your hands in the air and come along with me, you down with M-I-C, H-A-N-D, you down with M-I-C, H-A-N-D, you down with M-I-C, H-A-N-D, now throw your hands in the air and sing along with me, uh, yeah. Cedar Rapids, stands up, hip-hop, right under your nose, keep me on MySpace, I'm old school, I don't fuck with that Facebook shit, peace out, perfect.